Hello, welcome to the Blue Grid podcast. This is your host, Major Ani Fedotova, a psychologist at Los Angeles Air Force Base. What makes us resilient? What is grit? Please join me as I set out to discover how we can become greedier. This podcast features current and former military leaders, mental health experts, elite athletes, veterans, special operators, superior performers, POWs, and others affiliated with the military who have overcome significant adversity. Each guest will discuss the unique methods and practices to help airmen and really all service members or anyone interested to build mental toughness and grit. The views expressed are those of the author or guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the United States Air Force, the Department of Defense, or the United States government. Good evening from DC. This is your host, Ani Fedotova. And today I'm here with Master Surgeon Deondra Parks. Her story of resiliency is one of a kind. She's a survivor of an active shooting event. And I'm going to actually head over the microphone to you. Please introduce yourself. Hello. Thank you for having me so much. I am Master Sergeant Deandre Parks, and I'm currently assigned to a Defense Health Agency in Falls Church, Virginia, as the superintendent of user integration branch. Awesome. And I always start by asking folks, tell us about your career. Why did you join the Air Force? And then kind of how you progressed in your career. I am from Cincinnati, Ohio. I grew up in some of the not so great parts of town, but being raised by amazing parents, I definitely didn't see it <laughs> physically. I didn't see it. I always had a sense of wanting to give back and to look after others. And I still have that to this day. So I decided on the military in high school, but my brother actually joined before me. Mm-hmm. He would join the army and unfortunately, not unfortunately, but fortunately, he got the opportunity to serve in Iraq. By the time it came for me to join, he gave me some great advice, and that was to join the Air Force. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Some of the best advice I've ever been given. (laughs) Uh, To serve and protect and defend is is what I pretty much landed on and what I wanted to do. I am probably one of few that walked in a recruiter's office and said I wanted to do law enforcement. Mm -hmm. And the recruiter said he had just the job for me, and that was security forces. Mm-hmm. I later learned the importance of attention to detail, but that's neither here nor there. I looked at the paperwork on the duties, and I saw law enforcement. And that was enough for me. Signed, and I was out within six months. What I didn't see on that paper was two weeks of law enforcement and 11 of air-based defense <laughs> training, mm-hmm. uh, which was awesome. I had the time of my life in training. Absolutely had the time of my life in training, and I haven't looked back since then. I got my dream assignment, which was Aviano Air Base Italy. However, before I could land at my dream assignment, I was stationed in Daegu, Daegu, South Korea. Very, very small uh, base, GSU of Osan. Mm-hmm. I came in security forces and, again, on a deployment to Balad, Iraq, something sparked in me. I wanted to do more than protect, serve. You know, I wanted to do more than just protect and respond to incidents and guard resources. I would spend my one day off of three days on volunteering at the hospital. That's when I learned more about what it's like to be an Air Force medic and that it intrigued me enough to request a retrain to do just that. Mm -hmm. And that kind of leads us to to the story. Again, I'll open that up to you. Tell us about what happened. So I got my opportunity to retrain to become an aerospace medical technician, a 4NO. 
in 2009, right before Christmas, was the Christmas gift for sure. Mm. I was able to fulfill my dream. In 2010, I left for class in April of 2010 at Wichita Falls, Texas, with Shepherd Air Force Base. This is where the medical training campus was for the Air Force. I get there and I'm rocking and rolling two weeks into class. I'm doing well on my exams, horrible during sleep, (laughs) not getting enough sleep, staying up studying, knocking tests out. My classmate, Jade Henderson, we actually went through technical school together for security forces. Not the same team, but we were there at the same time and we were actually stationed in Aviano, Italy together Mm -hmm. as well. So she was in my class, someone I knew, a very familiar face. She and another classmate requested to study with me after our mandatory study session, which was held on base. So I suggested a place that I'd gone to once or twice before. I said, the coffee's good. There's this book there that I bought that helped me to get to where I am right now in the course. So we all piled into the classmate's vehicle and we head into town and the store was called Hastings. I say was because it's now out of business, but it's kind of like a Barnes and Noble. Mm-hmm. It's an entertainment bookstore. And the three of you. The three of us went, yes. So we got there and I chose a seat in the cafe near the exit, which was something I'd done since I began my career as a security forces member. The safest seat in the house to me to egress or to get out of there in case something were to happen. Did you uh, deliberately? Always. Interesting. Yes, oh. always. So I choose our seat, we order Frappuccinos, sit down, my two classmates return, and we start to study airway. I can't remember how many minutes into this study session on airway, which was our test the next morning. I felt someone next to me, and I go to turn, give him my full attention, and there's a young man standing there. I joke when I say this that I want to be so serious here because definitely humor and laughter has gotten me through up to this point and still will. But as an Air Force medic, two weeks into medic training, you're technically a doctor. This is not real, but you technically <laughs> are. You swear that you are. I look up at him and his pupils are dilated and I see that. I can see that from where I'm seated. I look up at him and he goes, um, hey niggers, it's Hitler's birthday. And before I could even respond to him or give him a piece of my mind, my classmate, from what I remember, Jade Henderson sitting across from me, jumped back from the table and got his full attention. He pulled Tollgate's shotgun from under, I believe his coat, or just into view, shot in her direction. I get up to run, my classmate next to me, In my mind, in my eyes, I feel like she just totally disappeared. I believe she got down on the floor. I ran in a straight line, tripping over tables, chairs, anything that was in my way. I was trying to run through it. What was going through your mind at the time? Oh, my goodness. What going through my mind was this is happening, this is happening. But for six years of training, learning to be and stay vigilant, as you ask me this right now, I went over how many people fit that description. It was myself, his ignorant description. It was myself, it was Jade, it was Mia, the barista. And there was a young lady in a um, seated living room area that was also African-American. I'm seeing myself, okay, it's gonna be us. That I recall that so in my head. So you thought of all the people who were yes, African-American? I recall that and, in my head, Yeah. yes. Oh, but as I'm running, I feel like I was just slapped back into reality but the slap was really a graze from a couple pellets from a shotgun blast in my direction 
it got grazed on the side of my face. And it was kind of a wake up call for me like, hey, you're not operating according to your training. You're making yourself visible. You, you know better. As Get you down. started running. Yes. And you realized. And after I was face. grazed on the side of my face, that hey, you're not acting according to any of the training. You're high. He can see you. You're making yourself a target. But also, I remembered a plan from that deployment in Balad. As silly as it might sound, I would be on a post for 12, 14 hours alone in a tower looking out into Balad, Iraq you know, looking for anything suspicious. And I always say to myself, if something were to happen outside of my control and ultimately I could not defend myself, I would play dead. Having six months of three ons and three offs to play these scenarios in your head is going to become some type of muscle memory for your brain. And that night it kicked in for me. So when that graze on the left side of my face hit me, it knocked me back into reality. You're making yourself a target and you're unarmed. And I immediately got to the ground to play dead, mm. almost uh, dramatically. Like, hey, you got me, you know? I got down on the ground, sprawled out in like a chalk outline, like, I'm done. I'm, I didn't even try to hide. I didn't ball up in a ball. I didn't hide behind a table. I laid out completely vulnerable because I needed him to know that I was dead. So in the moment when you knew that danger was real mm. and you could be killed that very moment, what kicked in was your training. Right. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So you're laying there and playing dead. What is going through your mind? What's going through my mind immediately is what I see. And that was, this is what happens during a mass shooting. Mm. This is how I'm going to die. It was pure chaos going on around me. I, like I said, I was laying on my abdomen, laying on my torso. I can look down to behind me and I see two young ladies hugging each other tight and close. I don't know if they were complete strangers or friends, but tight and close. And I see people hide, I see people still running, just pure chaos. And then I, I get back to my plan, play dead, close your eyes, close your eyes, close your eyes, he's gonna see you. I'm trying to control my breathing, trying to control my eyelids from fluttering. He shoots me and my mind is, again, he shoots me at close range through my right my right leg, mm. shattering my tibia plateau on impact and my patella and sending buckshots across both of my lower limbs. Mm. But too focused on that plan, I did not move except for what ricocheted of me off of the blast. I didn't beg, I didn't, anything didn't plead. I just, I just took the blast and just prayed to hope that he leave. But Instantly feeling that blast, I felt anger amongst the adrenaline throughout my body that he literally just shot me again as I'm laying here dead. Mm. He was planning to kill you. Absolutely. Absolutely. He definitely reloaded twice at that location. During his reloads, during his shooting, you hear, whoo, or white power, just him definitely enjoying Again, it was nine years ago, the anniversary, April 20th. Last week was nine years. The more and more I tell the story, I tell it so much, and I, I'm okay with talking about it because I will be damned if I forget any part of it. I remember our barista, Mia, screaming intermittently. And it's like in my mind, I'm telling myself that's, that was him walking towards her. She had nowhere to go. 
they work in the galleys behind mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. she had nowhere to go right. she received injuries behind the galley with nowhere to go when he left our location i knew because someone yelled he's gone and upon hearing that i rode over completely to my belly i was halfway on it i rode over completely because in my mind the last thing i saw was jade shot in her head you, you couldn't tell me i didn't see anything other than that in my mind, it was the last thing I saw. So I went to low crowd towards Jade, try and find Jade and be closer to Jade. And once I had my eyes on Jade, her injury was visible. The effects of her injury was visible uh, as far as blood and, mm-hmm. you know, flesh. Yeah. I yelled to our classmate who's uninjured to get us our cell phones. And she, she did that wonderfully. She handled herself wonderfully. She gave me my cell phone. She looked after Jade. I rode over to my back, made a couple phone calls that <laughs> sometimes they're important to say who they were and who they weren't. It just it all depends on who I'm speaking to. And because of, you know, today I wouldn't, I don't want to say who, but sure. 911 was definitely not the first phone call. Interesting. Yes. And not, and not saying who it was, I just want to say that the Air Force is my family. Mm-hmm. I needed someone in this uniform to know that I wasn't okay. Someone that I knew could get to me before my own family could. So that's what my first one or two phone calls were. And then who's going to call mom and say, hey, you know, I couldn't, couldn't call my mom. But as I lay there, I realized that it's not like the movies, help isn't coming immediately, and it won't come until that scene is safe. Police officers arrived and they guarded us with with their lives ready, not knowing what to expect, not knowing if he was still there, if someone else was coming, but definitely guarded us, stood over us. Eventually, EMTs, paramedics got us. I actually was transported with Jade to the facility there. I later learned that our attacker passed away in the room next to us. This is how small but great the facility was, but they, they could not handle our orthopedic wounds there. So we were life flighted to our Dallas Parkland in Dallas, Texas. So was Jade also shot in the legs or in the feet? So Jade, unfortunately, she lost her palm from what I could remember and recall. And I just, I just actually talked to her before I came here today. I told her how I feel so selfish that I haven't committed her version of the events to memory, but I feel like it's hers to tell. Mm-hmm. But Jade's injuries I believe a flesh wound to her head or the back of her head, which is very vascular, and she lost her palm. Mm -hmm. She blocked the blast with her palm, Mm -hmm. in which she's had reconstructive surgery. Mm -hmm. And nobody died? At that location, four of us were injured. He left my location. Hastings went to another location called uh, Toby's at the time. The name has since changed. And when he got to Toby's... Tim Donnelly, Army vet, stopped him at the door. He was the doorman that checked IDs and kept things secure there, stopped him. And in doing that, he saved so many lives, but he lost his own. Mm. He left that location and went to his sister's house and committed suicide. Wow. What a tragic story. Right. And the four people who were injured was himself, you, Jade, and Barista? Uh, It was myself, Jade, Leanne and the barista. Yeah, Leanne was actually, 
she told me she was in Bible study of a, some sort with a friend. And she was at a table not too far from mine. Mm-hmm. You acted in a very rational way throughout the entire event. Did you at any point feel like panicking? You, did you have that flight or fight response? Or did you feel like you were completely calm? I believe that I fought that fight or flight the entire time. I was a defender two weeks into medic training. There was so much I wanted to do, but I knew that ultimately I would not win. I would not. I fought, me fighting was playing dead on that ground. That was me fighting. But everything in me told me I could make it 10 more feet to that bookshelf. I could make it to that restroom. I could do it, I could do it, I could do it. And I just wanted to do it, even after I was shot. I just knew I, I could hop, I could get there. But I, 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 I couldn't. I knew that that would not be the best decision. You don't talk a lot about your pain during this experience, but it must have been excruciating physical pain. Very. If, if you, I mean, we can imagine, say, putting a sledgehammer into a flame, letting it sit there, and if the strongest guy picking that up and just ramming that into your body, I believe that's exactly what it felt like. Instant. But again, the adrenaline was rushing. I did some things to alleviate my pain while I was there on the scene, and that was, okay, if you hold your leg up, you know, it won't hurt as much as if you were laying down and laying straight. Um, Mm -hmm. I was also afraid that because there was so much blood and where my injury was that I was going to bleed out before I even got the help that I need. There was no one there, and that's okay. I'm going to say willing to apply pressure or, you know, there was no one there to, to do that you know, give me that first aid or that care, you know, on scene before the EMTs or paramedics arrived. So it's like, I kind of accepted my fate. Like I am going to bleed out. This is how it's going to end. This, this is how it's going to end. But in my mind, I could not get, I couldn't get Jade out of the forefront of my mind and making sure that she was okay. So you thought you were going to die? Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And you couldn't give up on the idea that Jade could be also dying. Right. And then what after? What happened afterwards? So after that, we were put in the ambulance. We had a pretty interesting ride. I'm telling you, who you are right now, if something were to happen to you, that is still going to be who you're going to be. I am one, I'll admit it, I'm not going to say a bossy person, but I am who I am. So I remember being in the back of the ambulance and I'm getting morphine. And I look over and I was like, hey, why isn't she getting morphine? Again, two weeks in a medic training. And if you possibly have a head injury, you, you can't receive that medication. And the paramedic, he was so nice. And he answered my questions. He was so calm with me. And then I felt like the driver hit every speed bump on the way <laughs> to the hospital. So I, I said, does he have to hit everyone? So the paramedic yelled to the EMT, hey, you know. Try to take it smooth, you know, smoothly, you know. I definitely, some of the best care I received was in the back of that ambulance, for sure. Knowing that we were on our way to help, again, I did not want to part ways with Jade. We went to separate rooms to be cared for, and I just, I just kept asking for her, where is she? 
And I said, um, I'm not leaving until I see her. So, of course, they wrote Jade to me. <laughs> or, like, here she is. You guys are both being, like, flattered. And, and we were. And when we got to Dallas Parkland, I got to see Jade. I want to say either the following day or two days after. And it was actually Jade. And I need her to know this. That kick started my road to healing emotionally and mentally. When she came to my hospital room, she was ambulatory, I wasn't, came to my hospital room and said, we have to forgive him. Mm. And we prayed and we did just that, forgave him. And we also had a little bit of security forces humor, being two females <laughs> in such an amazing career field, having fired tons of weapons and qualified. We talked about how blessed we knew we both were. We definitely chose to forgive him and I have not seen him in my dreams. He doesn't haunt me. I'm not fascinated with him. I'm not obsessed with him, any of that. Mm -hmm. And you think that's because you? I chose to forgive early. I chose to accept. It was later on that I would learn his issues, what drove him, his why. It was later on that I would learn that. But before I even learned that, looking at my mom and telling my mom, he wasn't right. Okay, he may have been raised to something more, but he, he was hurting. Not making excuses for him, but he was hurting. And I'm not going to sit here and hate an entire race because of him or blame anyone, blame his family, his upbringing, any of that. I don't have the energy. I need to put my energy into recovering, even still nine years later. I would imagine that would be so challenging to do that, especially so early on. It sounds like you focused on forgiveness the next day. Literally. Talk to me about how easy, how difficult was it? To forgive, uh, I've admitted this more than once, that that was the easiest decision I've made to do. I travel and tell my story, I tell it locally wherever I am, and I've had fathers approach me who can't forgive the young men that have hurt their own daughters. And they, they try to further understand when I say I forgave him, and I reiterate that to them. I literally forgave him for what he did. You have to, and it's not unheard of to do that. I won't forget it. I won't make excuses for it. But it was by far the easiest decision I made in my recovery, for sure. What made it easy for you? What made it easy was knowing that the control that it gave me, knowing that this was something that I was deciding for myself and no one else was going to decide for me. The relief that it gave me mentally. Mm -hmm. I'm an Air Force Master Resilience Trainer. Thanks to Dana Puevely and Master Arm Retired Chief Pittman Kennedy. I am a Master Resilience Trainer and in this training you learn and you teach different skills to be resilient and to stay resilient. But during this you learn about a board of directors and it's like the people who guide you, the people you want to make proud, the people you want to prove otherwise to. And he literally sits up there immensely in my brain <laughs> right next to my parents. Mm. I want to make my parents proud, but I'll be damned if I allow this person to control my life. So if it's during the last few seconds of the parts of the PT test I can do, I will remember him and what he tried to do to me and take away from me, and I will push through. So as far as my recovery, he comes into factor in those moments when I need to push through. Mm -hmm. 
but I need to remember why I'm still here and how I'm still here and who didn't want me to still be here, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. How do you think this event has changed you or the way you view the world, other people? To be honest with you, negatively, it didn't. It definitely didn't impact me negatively. It didn't. Made me open my eyes a little bit wider. I will admit that I don't sit near exits anymore because if it's going to happen, it's going to happen. It made me realize that this story is not my own and that I need to share it. And through sharing it, I'll not only heal myself, but I'll help others heal. But most importantly, it showed me that human beings are resilient. Mm. We are born resilient, but we have to learn how to nurture that skill that we're born with. It's within our nature, but we have to learn how to nurture it. And I've done my best to take advantage of the resources available to me within this uniform and out to build on those skills. Because one thing I've learned is that I'm not exempt from anything bad happening to me. I'm not exempt from my my heart being broken. Sorry. I'm not exempt from not getting the, the things that I thought I was ready for when it comes to, say, promotion, when it comes to um, the job that I really, really wanted. That life is going to keep knocking you down, but you have to remain resilient and push through. And sitting here, my mom and my family say that my middle name is dramatic. Uh, I'm dramatic. Sitting here, honestly, nine years ago, that was not the worst day of my life. It was not the worst day. It was not. Wow. It was not. Definitely an eye-opener. One thing I, I'm not sure if it's a negative or if it's a positive, I always say to myself, this is going to pass. I remember waking up and seeing that my leg was still intact after the the main surgery to save it. I realizing that it's still there. And I said to myself, okay, got to push through this. Get to that walking thing again. I'm going to be okay. This this isn't going to last long, but it was horrific. I didn't recognize it for the pain that it was causing me. I just pushed through that and I'm like this isn't going to be Forever, this is temporary. When PT came to get me up out the bed and, and made me walk, I told myself, okay, you'll get through this, it'll be okay. I never stay in those moments, I'm always on to the next step and ready for it. And that's helped me heal. I don't give myself this false sense of, I don't know that I'm okay, I guess. I just kind of like, okay, this is what this is gonna be and hey, this too shall pass and it will and it always does. That's why I've had dark days. I've been depressed. I've been down and out, but I refuse to make permanent decisions, you know. During those times. During those times, because I know that it will pass. I know through programs like the Air Force Wounded Warrior Program, in which I'm enrolled and actively involved, this further helped me see that I may have been the first person at Hastings in Wichita Falls, Texas, to be in a hate crime. But I'm not the first person to receive these injuries or to be diagnosed with PTSD or depression. 
I'm not. There's other people out there like me. And through this program, I get to connect and bond with them and heal with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I have so many questions. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to come back to something you mentioned earlier. You said this was not the worst day of your life. Could I ask you about the worst day of your life? And I say that to say that I can't pinpoint a worst day of my life because I've since been hurt and I... I've gone through a breakup that I never thought would happen. I never thought that I'd be shot because of color of skin. I never thought that someone I thought was the love of my life would no longer be. Or I didn't get the job that I wanted. I wasn't chosen for that award that I worked so hard for. You know, I'm not saying those are worse days, but worse times. And as the years pass, you meet other people who have been through similar situations or worse It helps you put your own into perspective, but at no point during my recovery will I not recognize and give credit to how far I've made it in my healing, if that makes sense. I don't use what happened to me as a crutch. I know I can give up. I know that I could become a racist. I know mm-hmm. that I would be justified in all of that because of what happened to me, and that motivates me even more to do the opposite. I spoke at a school in Columbus, Ohio, and Davis. They brought me out for the second time to speak to their students. And of course I cover bullying, but I also cover overcoming adversity. And I talked about how I forgave. And there was a young man in the front row and he goes to his friend, I mean, she got shot. If she wants to hate people, then she can, or you know, not in those exact words. And I asked him to repeat himself and he did. You know, like you, you deserve, you can be angry. You deserve that. It's justified. Justified. Mm-hmm. And I said to him, and that is reason enough for me not to be, just because I can be. That doesn't make it okay. Mm. How does that help me? And how does that help anyone? It doesn't serve you. It doesn't. Mm. Yeah. What about Jade? What about Jade? <laughs> Jade is one amazing woman. She is a wife, loving wife, and mom of four. <laughs> She just had her last kiddo, I believe it was last March or March before last. I want to say last March. Jade is also still on active duty in the Air Force. Due to her injury, she could not retrain back into the medical career field, in which I was able to the following year. She is a public health technician, mm-hmm. and she's currently assigned to Seymour Johnson. Mm-hmm. is where she's assigned. And it's amazing that both of you were able to come back to the Air Force. Can you walk me through a little bit about the support or lack of support you received from either within the military community or outside of the military community? What was helpful? What wasn't helpful? I know there's a saying, we have a small Air Force. Oh, it's a small Air Force. Added to that, it's small Air Force, large family. Because what I learned, I couldn't, couldn't go home to mom. When that happened. Why not? I had to recover. I wasn't terminal. It wasn't going down that road. I was going on the road of full recovery. So the Air Force brought my family down to be able to visit me while I was inpatient at Dallas Parkland. But ultimately, they had to return to their lives, which they were okay doing, knowing that I was okay. So that meant I had to be okay enough for them to want to leave. That's what motivated me 
to kickstart my recovery immediately. I started speaking to the psychiatrist there at Tinker Air Force Base in which I was TDY from, and I received the diagnosis of PTSD over the phone. I remember like it was last night and started medication to help me sleep and to help regulate my mind to my new normal. As far as support, the Air Force Wounded Warrior Program knew about me before I even knew what it was. I had a recovery care coordinator there to help me at my bedside. Again, I was in Dallas Parkland, which was, oh, I believe it's about three hours from Oklahoma City, in which I was TDY out of. I was stationed in Oklahoma before I went to training. My RCC, a retired Chief Master Sergeant Woods, he was my dad, no offense. He was my dad, he was my uncle. He was my everything when those people couldn't be there. And then when my family got there, he was still there. He watched me take those first steps with PT when I had to. He helped me process the necessary paperwork. He helped me go from being in a wheelchair to having crutches to having a cane. He helped me get all the proper medical equipment that I needed to recover. Helped me with kind leave, all that jazz. All while I wasn't the only airman the wounded airman that he was helping. There were other airmen at Tinker that he was also charged with helping as well, but I didn't feel like that. I felt like he was just mine, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's how awesome his support was. This was 2010 and 2011. My unit, 2nd Security Forces Squadron at Tinker Air Force Base, my commander, Lieutenant Colonel Roberts, my healing was a priority to him. He didn't allow me to sit at home and fester he made me still feel like a part of the team. And he'd have me come in, answer his phone at the secretary seat, S4, which is our supply section. Made me these two ammo cans for 25 pounds each. So I was able to get my curl on and uh, stay fit as much as I possibly could. His wife, Jenny, started up a PT for the members in a security forces squadron that were on profiles and couldn't do the regular PT with our other squadron members. We swam. She got us in the pool. Wow. <laughs> I know. Jenny is awesome. She got us in the pool, kept us in shape. She taught us that, okay, I had been hearing the cans, but she taught me the cans and swimming was one of them. She gave us options to choose from. That support there at Tinker, was undeniably amazing. When I found out that I would be returning to retrain again to become a medic, my commander afforded me the opportunity to work at the hospital and get some training in before I left for medic training, mm -hmm. which was moved to Fort Sam, the Metsy campus down there. So I did not have to return to Shepherd, although I was willing to do so. I went to Metsy and I retrained. The support was continuous. I was able to tell my story at my graduation and when I got to write Pat, silly of me, I said that I'm going to leave that there. No one needs to know this happened. I see. This happened there. I'm going to leave that there. This is my clean slate. Right. And that didn't last too long before I realized that I was slipping mentally. And I started to get the help that I need. I recall an encounter with General Wolfenbarger, the first female four-star in the Air Force, and we were talking about the importance of bone health. Me being, in her eyes, this young staff sergeant and her being a four-star, she goes, 
you know, what do you even know, you know, about bone health? Not her exact words, but I said to her, oh, I know a bit because this happened. And I told her a little bit of my story, not the full story, but enough for her to know that this is what happened to me and others that night and two that are in the uniform. The next day, I received a call from the 88th Air Base Wing Command Chief Exec, Holly Vaught, Texar and Vaught, to schedule an appointment with the 88th Air Base Wing Command Chief and get in there and speak with him and see him. I did that, and I learned that the general had went back and said, hey, this person exists, and she definitely reached back and made sure that I got the support. I believe that started my recoil. I call my time at Wright Pat my recoil because that's exactly where I went to heal and start over and start the trajectory onto my recovery. Because you were able to speak to other airmen. To other airmen, right. Chief Mazza, Chief Warner afforded me the opportunity to speak within the wing, the Matchcom, the wing there at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base and share my story. Chief Mazza afforded me the opportunity at FTAC, First Term Airmen Center, which is a program on base for first term airmen, which is facilitated by the Career Assistance Advisor. At the time, it was Master Sergeant Pittman Kennedy. I told my story for the first time, and um, after doing that a couple times, our community support coordinator, Dana Pleveley, presented me with the opportunity to become a resiliency trainer and assistant. And then I went on to become a master resiliency trainer, and I went to the Expeditionary Skill Center up in Fort Dix, McGuire. And I returned, and I led training for the group, the med group, squadrons, and just taught the skill of remaining resilient. And you gave some TED Talks. Yes. <laughs> because of that opportunity, Dana Pleveley, community is the big part of her position, community support coordinator, selected me to participate in Dayton's first TED Talk, and the theme was Infuse and Inspire. So I hit that stage with some very inspiring people. And I learned a lot about TED Talk. We had a lot of rehearsals. Um, You did an amazing job. I watched Oh, my goodness. (laughs) No one told me it would be that many people in the audience. I didn't know that my wing commander, Colonel Cassie Barlow, is now retired, would be there. Mm-hmm. Um, she walked in on the side as I began with public affairs as well. My mom was in the audience. You know, I even referenced her in there. She is my my biggest motivator for sure. Mm-hmm. For sure. I I have an episode, an interview with Dr. Gary Percival. It's episode number nine. I keep referencing that episode, and in fact, I was talking to some women during the officer leadership symposium. And this came up. Dr. Percival, who's considered the father of the Air Force Seer Psychology, talks about ways to bounce back and to be resilient. And I love that episode because he gives very concrete tactics, techniques, and procedures on how to be resilient. And what I love about your story is that you basically did exactly what he describes. So he kind of conceptualizes in three things. He worked a lot with POWs and folks who kind of suffered for a long period of time, and they have to reintegrate back to the society. He talks about step number one is taking an action, which is what you did. The first thing is you you made the decision. You need to heal. You need to go through the surgery, and then you need to forgive. 
So basically, his ideas do something. It doesn't have to be big. It just has to be some type of action. Take an action. Do something. The second thing is seek support, which sounds like you've done plenty of. And fortunately, and I'm so glad to hear that the Air Force was there for you to provide that support and your family was there for you to provide that support. And number three, which is really fascinating and exactly what you describe is giving back. The third step to recovery is being able to share your story with other people. And that's what's healing. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the other big piece of support is I was able to deploy in 2015. Hmm. I took Kuwait. It was a medic deployment. I definitely enjoyed it. When I returned from that deployment, I was given the opportunity to work as the command chief exec for Chief Master Sergeant Lisa Arnold, who was the 88th Air Base Wing command chief. And oh, now that you know. Yes. That I know. <laughs> Which is the reason SMC why I'm here today. Chief. That's right. <laughs> Man, Good awesome, awesome us, chief. Yeah. So in that opportunity and working for her and her learning more about my story, learning about how my recovery is going, she attended. I'm not sure what TDY she was on, but she texts me and she goes, hey, are you in the Wounded Warrior program? And like, no, you know, I don't qualify for that. And or I've since healed this much or I'm not in, you know, I don't qualify for that. And she oh, you do. I think you do. Get on that, you know, not her exact words, but pretty much get on that. You you know, our personality for sure. And I looked into it and found out that I was eligible. This was in 2016 when I officially got enrolled into the Air Force Wounded Warrior Program. But I will be honest and tell you that I never felt like I didn't belong to something when it came to the resources that were available to me. You know, it was just now getting an, an official name. That's why I said earlier this program knew about me before I even knew what it was. Mm -hmm. And ever since I've been enrolled, uh, I attended my first care event, which was at Eglin Air Force Base in 2017, a year ago. And I participated in the ambassador portion of the program where we shape our stories to prepare to tell it. Yes, I'd done the different briefings on base within a community at high schools, middle schools, and I'd done this TED Talk, but I'd never done it in a way where I also showcased and told what this program has done for me, what the Air Force did for me, and because of it, how I'm healing or how I'm recovering. So I reshaped my story, and now I'm able to tell it at the different locations that the care events take place, or I'll come back here, and I've been at Andrews to speak more than once. I'll be speaking again here later next month at Andrews. Uh, today, I got to brief the Air Force Surgeon General staff on the program, as well as my story. The goal of the program is awareness. We want everyone to know this program exists. It's congressionally mandated. It's not the Wounded Warrior Project. It's here for you to get you through your MEB, your healing, whatever it may be. And if we get to that point, it's also here to help you transition. So for people who are struggling with tough times right now, mm -hmm. what would be your recommendations? And also, please include all the resources that were helpful hey. to you in a practical way. What could they do? To be honest with you, my recommendation, if you're going through a tough time, no, I don't believe that anyone's a mind reader. They're not. If you have your leadership, if you have someone in your chain of command, a loved one, someone that can get you to the right resource, if you're not willing to contact that resource directly, make sure you know who those people are in your life that you can get to and tell that to and 
that can get you to those resources. Again, I talked about my board of directors. There's different people that sit up there that I know that I can rely on. One thing I have learned is that our leaders, they're charged with so much, charged with so much. And taking care of us is one, but they can't know what we need from them if we don't convey that to them. Mm -hmm. I've gotten more from the leaders throughout my recovery by telling them exactly what I need from them. And it sounds like you had an amazing experience of support from your leadership. Yes, and there's no need to sit here and highlight the negative experiences because when a negative experience will happen, I will remember, I had good, I've had good. And again, that this is temporary and this will pass, you know. Or I remember, okay, what is, what is your role? Why are you not getting the support that you think you need? Okay, what's another avenue you can take? And I call myself an opportunist, which sometimes isn't a, isn't a good thing, but to me it is. I, I've taken advantage of every possible resource that I know of that could be beneficial to me. And can you tell the airmen what are those old service oh, members? What goodness. are the resources? I mean, just for example, I'm not sure if every location has this. I learned that there's a nightmare clinic at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. This was years ago. I'm not sure if it's still there. And in this clinic, you can learn how to turn your nightmares around or stop them mm -hmm. in their tracks within your dreams or your nightmares. Yeah, probably most of the smaller yes. clinics don't have a specific nightmare clinic. Yes. But for, for those airmen who are interested, there is actually a nightmare protocol and it's a treatable condition. It's not treatable for everybody, but we do have pretty good science behind treating nightmares. Absolutely, and I had no clue about that. But also, in between, when I just didn't feel like myself or I wasn't getting enough sleep, I learned that BHOP, behavioral health, exists within the clinic. And can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, so I'm working in an internal medicine clinic when I learned that I thought it was only in family health. I also learned we incorporated into the internal medicine clinic at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. And these are mental health providers embedded within the clinics. And you don't have to have a referral to mental health to see a provider. You can see one right there within the clinic. And there was this one time I wasn't getting enough sleep. I worked in internal medicine. We had open appointments for BHOP. And my nurse manager got me in. And what I realized was I was laying down in my bed with too much on my mind. I needed to write those thoughts out. I learned to either write them out. I learned to either not get in bed unless I was ready to go to bed. Learned a lot, but if I didn't know about that, I just thought I was on this whirlwind, a spiral down again of not controlling my thoughts or my feelings or my emotions. What I needed was sleep therapy. <laughs> right. And, 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 and Hop is a wonderful place for that. Behavioral health optimization program, and every clinic has has a a big help provider. Yeah, and Wounded Warrior program, absolutely. Also, letting my peers know mm. when I'm not okay, getting more comfortable with letting my peers know when I'm not okay. Mm. When April twentieth rolls around or that week, hey, this is going to be a tough week for me. I'm pushing through, but. This week is going to be a tough week for me, you know. So just being transparent, yeah. Right. It was definitely helpful or is helpful. Right. Yeah. Wow. What an interesting story. I can't believe you went through all of this. You, you seem to be positive is the wrong word. You wise. 
you're wise about it. Is that a good way to describe I think, it? I think it is because, you know what, every day ends up being a good day, but there are bad moments throughout. Right. Our good friend, Master and Hanley, told me don't, um, don't let, uh, was it eight minutes ruin eight hours? Yeah. yeah. I apply that to my life. Have like that, that moment, have that time. Don't let it ruin your day. But move on. Move on. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Is there something that I'm not asking you that you feel is important for service members to hear? I need them to know that, yes, I'm in pain every day of my life. Yes, I have intrusive thoughts. I avoid certain things. I'm human. I'm hurting. But I literally take each day as it's given to me and push through and push through. The moments that I feel physically or mentally or emotionally that I'm incapable of being a valuable asset in this uniform, I know that through the resources available to me, to include the Air Force Wounded Warrior Program, I will have those resources offered to me and I will transition. Mm-hmm. But my goal is to become the first female chief master in the Air Force. <laughs> That's still my goal. I believe it. I believe it. <laughs> and we sh- you we have shall so see. much determination. <laughs> I know. Who's going to stop me? I'm just joking. But um, that's my goal. Absolutely. And I mean, if you dream that high and shoot that high, I mean, how can you, how can you fail along the way? How can you? Awesome. Thank you so much for your time and for driving out here. And this was Mass Surgeon DeAndre Parks. Thank you for the interview. Thank you. This is your host, Major Anya Fedotova. Thank you for listening to the Blue Grid Podcast. Hopefully you enjoyed this interview. My goal is to air the narratives of courage, vulnerability, and grit to normalize the airmen's own challenges and help them internalize the message of hope and recovery. This discussion is not a formal medical advice and any techniques, treatment, diagnosis, or alternative actions discussed are not a recommended treatment or course of action for all listeners and are not a replacement for professional medical assistance. You are encouraged to seek medical psychological help for your unique issue. If you have feedback, please find me in the global. My email is anavfedotova.mil at mail.mil. It's anna.v.fedotova.mil at mail.mil.